Hey guys, Dr. Richard Stevenson from Stevenson Dental Solutions has a quick message for you. We've been using CareStack at Stevenson Dental Group for about two years now. It's been nothing short of phenomenal in terms of organizing our patient database and uh, allowing us to easily enter progress notes, treatment plans. But I think the biggest impact it's had is on our patient interface. In other words, connecting better with patients through many different vehicles, whether it be text, email, letting people know that they can call us, things like this. I love the messaging aspect of CareStack, where the patients can feel connected to the practice at all times. I love the fact that CareStack is adaptable in constantly improving to deal with whatever events may come along. For example, during COVID, they were able to interface with patients through texting, and they were really groundbreaking in this particular area. So I think that CareStack is the complete package. At Stevenson Dental Education, Stevenson Dental Group, we are all about getting the best no matter what it costs. And I can confidently tell you that this is the best product in the world. And I have no hesitation in that opinion. And for us, cost is not the primary factor. However, I will tell you that the cost of CareStack is in my opinion, cheap compared to the other options out there that require a lot of plugins and things like that. It's a complete package. And for the return on your investment, I don't think you can beat it. So I got to tell you, I love CareStack. I absolutely love it. If I were a software engineer that was designing a dental management software program that was robust and had all the connectivity that you could ever want, I would have designed something like CareStack. Whether you're small or you're a DSO, CareStack is going to handle it for you beautifully. You have a small practice. You don't see a lot of patients. You can dive deep into CareStack and really get a lot out of all the features from a dentist standpoint, all of the technical things that we love to do, creating templates for our chart entries or being able to have robust periodontal record tracking. All of these kinds of things can be done at a very high level with some input and time, of course, on the part of the dentist. But for a small operation, it's fantastic. For a major enterprise, a multi-clinic situation with numerous providers, CareStack is easily going to handle no matter what size practice you have. So I think it's for everybody. CareStack is the all-in-one cloud-based practice management software. Click the first link in the show notes below to schedule a free personalized demo. If you like what you see, you get an exclusive deal just for being a listener of the Dental Marketer Podcast. And the exclusive deal is one month for free, 10% off your annual subscription, and 50% off your setup fee. So click on the first link in the show notes below to find out more. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Dental Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Arias. And in this episode, I am speaking with Dr. Kimokinon Eagleum, a.k.a. Dr. E. I had also been meeting with other doctors and having lunch with them uh, and going by their offices in conjunction uh, with the marketing person going out to different locations. Mm -hmm. So 
I did see an improvement in some offices prefer, but it wasn't uh, very significant. So I realized that most of the offices, they prefer to meet the doctor in person. And it's just a lot easier for some reason. They just feel more comfortable when they meet the doctor that they're going to be referring to. So I stopped using the marketing person for that reason, because I figured, you know, I might as well just set up lunches, meet them myself, meet the office staff so they can see your personality, see who you are and make sure they like you before, you know, they start referring. And that that works out better. And that's what really helped generate more um, referrals. He is such a humble guy. I mean, we talk about how he moved from Nigeria to Jamaica and in his late teens came to the States and fell in love with dentistry. Actually, his initial goal was to be a plastic surgeon, but something happened. So listen to see what changed his mind and why he decided to dive into dentistry. And then he dove even further into oral surgery. So we talk about his process in getting into or specializing into oral surgery, uh, his experience working at hospitals, which by the way, something Dr. E had to deal with, which is I'm curious if any of you had had to deal with this, but while working at the hospital, he's had to deal with druggies or people always wanting to get drugs or narcotics. They fake things, right? They fake injuries uh, just to get those narcotics. So listen to see how he handled it in the hospital setting and how he sometimes rarely has to handle it in his private practice. And I'm curious, uh, do you have to handle that? These type of patients or these type of people, the ones who like come in and they're like, I just want those narcotics. How do you deal with it? Let me know. You can either let me know on the Dental Marketer Society Facebook group or on Instagram. Just direct message me. Uh, Let me know if it happens to you or not and just find us under The Dental Marketer. But anyways, continuing with Dr. E, he gives us a detailed breakdown of the startup process that he went through. He also talks about what separates him from other specialists in the area. And one thing I like that he mentions is no matter who you are, If you're rushing, you'll be more careless. That's so true. And he expands more on that. And we also talk about his marketing and advertising and what he says um, to create these awesome partnerships with local leaders in the community. So he gives us like scripts, right? And how these partnerships refer patients to him as well. And in that, we answer the question, what's more effective? And I want to know your opinion. What do you think is more effective too? So let me know either on Instagram or in the Dental Marketer Society Facebook group. But what's more effective when networking with other businesses? A lunch and learn or a dinner and drinks with a doctor or business owner. So a lunch and learn or a dinner and drinks. Dr. E answers this for us. So guys, without further delay, here is Dr. E. Dr. E, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing pretty good, man. Thanks for asking. I've seen you a lot on LinkedIn recently. And I'm like, who's this guy who's doing amazing in Maryland, which I've never been to Maryland, but... Tell us a little bit about your past, your present. How did you get to where you are today? Great. I'm happy to have a presence on LinkedIn, which was, you know, by design. My name is, you know, Kamaka Megalom, as you mentioned. So I'm actually Nigerian. I was born in Nigeria. Um, My dad left Nigeria when I was about three years old. We moved to Jamaica and we lived there for uh, most of my early childhood years. 
Then we finally came to the States. And my uh, initial goal for coming to the States was obviously seeking better opportunity, which is, you know, what most foreigners do when they come to the United States. It's the, the land of opportunity. So that's what my dad wanted for us. So he always had a vision that one day we should come to the United States to pursue higher education. So I kind of came here uh, with my eldest brother. Uh, he's a cardiologist. He does practice Atlanta, Georgia. Followed him to Howard University, where I did my undergraduate studies. Then I stayed for dental school uh, after falling in love with Washington, D.C. I didn't want to leave the area. And after dental school, uh, I then proceeded to complete four additional years of oral surgery training at Howard University Hospital before uh, opening uh, my practice here in uh, Maryland. Nice. Okay, man, that's good. So rewind a little bit. Do you remember any of your time in Nigeria? Honestly, because I was so young, most vivid memory that I have is just like playing as a kid, maybe in the market, a lot of people around, shopping, selling, and, um, you know, like begging my mom to buy me candy, her buying me candy. Yeah. And that's, that's, the, that's the only vivid memory I have. Everything else is more of like a blur. Most of okay. my memories are from Jamaica. Okay, so then fast forward to Jamaica. You were how, when did you leave Jamaica? Like what age were you, would you say? I was uh, 17 years old when I left. Oh man. Okay. So you were in there for a minute. What did you, I guess, enjoy about Jamaica where you're like, was it in Jamaica where you're like, I'm going to be in dentistry or in dental school or something or no, not yet. Funny enough. So my, most people in my family are in healthcare, just like a lot of foreigners are. So you're always taught that if you want to have a job that's going to have staying power, a career that you can take with you anywhere in the world, that healthcare is the field to look into the professions pretty much. So my dad was a pharmacist, so he always emphasized sciences. And so most people in my family did the same thing, we kind of followed along the same path of sciences. My initial goal was actually to become a plastic surgeon. Um, draw was a love for surgery and kind of cosmetics and art. So I wanted to kind of blend both into one. But um, after coming to the United States and learning about the medical system and then learning about dentistry, which we, we don't have a lot of exposure to in Jamaica, mm-hmm. it kind of pulled me more towards dentistry once I got exposed to oral surgery in the hospital setting, pretty much. So my first exposure to oral surgery was with an oral surgeon in a hospital setting. And I'd never heard about oral surgery Never heard about much about the dental specialties until I kind of shadowed in the hospital for a few years that I kind of fell in love with the procedures that oral surgeons did, essentially. Okay, okay. You mentioned you learned about the medical system in the States. What do you mean by that? Like, what did you learn? So there's a lot of uh, good things in the sense that there's a lot of higher education here, a lot of... uh, great research and a lot of uh, pioneers in the medical space here in the United States. However, I think with insurance kind of controlling the way medicine is delivered, the direction that medical practice is going, it's almost as if the doctors are held captive by insurance companies to do certain procedures that they may or may not agree with in certain instances. For instance, if I'm an emergency room doctor, and there's a patient that has come in four, five, six times in that week. And I say, hey, you know, what are you here again for? He says, hey, I'm here for the same thing. I have belly ache. 
And if I know this person is just like what we call a malinger, just coming in just to kind of get free food, get free medications, and then, you know, go back out in the street and come back again, legally, by insurance standards, you have to do the same thing. You have to run the same tests. You have to uh, check the patient for certain conditions. And you may even need to prescribe medications and to try to avoid the person readmitting or coming back to the hospital, even though years of doctor may know, okay, this, uh, I know this person, I've seen them many times, so I'm going to manage it this way. But based on insurance, you have to do certain things legally and you know, insurance-wise. So with dentistry, it is slowly moving in the same direction where managed care and insurances are kind of starting to dictate what kind of care patients receive. However, most patients in dentistry, when they see you, it's not life or death for the most part. It's mostly elective. So you do have the choice of saying, hey, this is what I recommend, even though you don't, your insurance doesn't agree with it or insurance may not cover it. This is the recommended treatment. Then the person can leave and choose not to do the treatment and may, you know, go to find a different doctor that may agree to do the treatment. But I'm not legally liable for anything because I didn't render treatment to patient. Whereas in medicine, in some situations, you may be legally liable. Yeah. I never knew that. Do people really, like, do a lot of homeless people do that? Like, they linger, they're like, hey, I'm going to come back, and they're just, there's nothing really wrong with them? Yeah. I worked in the emergency room for two years uh, in two different hospital emergency rooms, and I saw firsthand pretty much just the abuse and the waste in the medical system. You know, you'd have the repeat offenders same person will come in two days in a row, same issue. You have to run the same test. You do a, an x-ray, an ultrasound. You give them, you know, a narcotic medication because they're supposedly in so much pain. And then you discharge them. And then tomorrow they're back again. Mm-hmm. And you have to treat them. You cannot turn them away. Versus in dentistry, if I have a patient that's a difficult patient, problematic patient that I've already seen, and I don't believe there's anything additional that needs to be done, I can simply say, I don't believe you need any further treatment. And this is my recommendation. And that's the end of it. But in medicine, it's not the same. You're held to certain standards and legally you're responsible for, you know, making sure certain procedures or or protocols are followed. Yeah. Has that happened so far in your practice? Like where somebody's come in and you're like, oh, you just want the drug. Yeah, it happened. Not frequently uh, in the location that I'm in currently, but in the previous location that I was in, it's an area called the Greenbelt uh, in Maryland. The office that I worked in, we had a large population of people from lower social economic uh, backgrounds. So a lot of times, um, unfortunately, some of them would come in and try to pretend to have a toothache just so they can have stronger medications. And usually they'll come in asking for it by name. You know, they'll say starts with letter P or something, you know. They'll say oxy or something like that. So you know, that's usually a telltale sign, especially when it's just a cavity or something small that can simply be fixed by seeing a dentist. But they're moving from office to office. And you can see the history. because You'll see that they've already been to, you know, two different offices and they've already been prescribed prescriptions for maybe narcotics. And now that you're in your office and they still haven't gotten the, the recommended treatment, which could be as simple as uh, filling a cavity or food extraction. So you know that person is pretty much seeking medication. But in my current location in Bowie, I don't really have too many of those patients, thank God. Yeah, no, that's good. So then how do you handle that, Dr. E? Like, especially if they're like, you know, they get 
angry sometimes and they're like, no, give it to me right now. Like, I'm going to leave you a bad review. And you're, you're a practice owner. So you're kind of like, man, I don't want another bad review. All these things. How do you handle it? So for me, what I try to do is I focus on evidence-based practice or science-based. So if I look at the patient and I see that they have an ailment, let's say a broken tooth, maybe an exposed nerve or something, then uh, I would recommend, you know, removal of the tooth right away if it's a tooth that's not salvageable, let's say. And if the person refuses the treatment but just demands the medication, then what I typically would do is I will prescribe a combination of acetaminophen and uh, ibuprofen because the science has shown that those two in combination and alternated together is actually more effective than an opioid or narcotic. So that's what I usually explain to the patient. And if they don't agree with it, that's my stance. I don't bend the rules, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm angry or pushing me to do something that's against my training, pretty much. Yeah. No, that's good. That's really, really good. Okay. So then fast forward a little bit more and you went to Howard University and you fell in love with Washington, D.C. Why? So Washington, D.C. is the multicultural, multi-ethnicity and just kind of a world worldly uh, city. So everyone from any any walk of life you can imagine would be, you know, coming to D.C. for one reason or another, whether they're studying at the university or they're visiting just to tour the historic sites, the museums, the White House, those kind of things. So you get to rub shoulders with a lot of people from different walks of life. So it's almost like a melting pot. And I felt very comfortable here because there are a lot of people that come from Africa, from the Caribbean, India. So I've met, I've met a lot of different people here. And most people here are very highly educated. So I think that's the, the environment for me that I, I thrive best in being around a lot of um, academics and people that are well-read and well-traveled. So DC is like the perfect place if you want to um, have that type of environment. Nice, man. Okay. And then you went into, you took four more years, right, into oral surgery. Why'd you go that route? After meeting the uh, oral surgeon, well, I I met her while I was working in the hospital in the emergency room uh, by chance. And she said, oh, I'm an oral and maxillophagia surgeon. So I said, what's that? She said, you know, just come see what we do. So I called her, went went to rounds with residents in the hospital, kind of saw them treating patients that had jaw fractures, doing a post-operative visit on a patient that they had already treated the day prior, or someone that has like a large infection that they, uh, they're planning to take to the operating room to uh, manage the infection. And I was just amazed because one is very surgical, as the name implies, oral surgery. So I loved the surgical aspect of it. And because I started kind of growing a resentment for the medical or the healthcare system, I said, well, let me look towards dentistry since I found a specialty that aligns with my interests, which is surgery, cosmetics, and art. So after shadowing for a couple of years with that oral surgeon, um, that's when I decided this is going to be the specialty for me. And before I even applied to dental school, I knew I wanted to do oral surgery. I didn't have any other exposure to any other specialties in dentistry. And I just loved the surgical aspect of uh, oral surgery. There's no other specialty in dentistry that has that much surgical involvement at all. So it was an easy choice for me after that chance exposure in oral surgery. Nice. Okay. So then right now in your practice, is that what you mainly focus on? Surgery or what, what is it? Exactly. So I'm an, uh, uh, limited to oral and maxillofacial surgery. So I do 
anything from teeth extractions, including like wisdom teeth. I do dental implant surgeries. I do bone grafting or rich uh, bone augmentation surgeries. Uh, I used to do some uh, jaw surgery or orthognathic surgery, but in my current practice, it's been uh, difficult to find those cases because most of the cases are typically referred to the hospital setting or to maybe a larger, more established oral surgeons in the area. So my primary focus is the bread and butter oral surgery, which is typically teeth extractions, IV sedation, dental implant uh, placement, which is what I do uh, mostly. And dental implant surgery is my special focus or my special love in oral surgery, even though I, lo- you know, I love all of oral surgery, but dental implant surgery is something that I, I've taken out of loving for and kind of focus a lot of my energies and attention in trying to improve and add to my repertoire of knowledge as it uh, pertains to dental implants. So you don't do any like preventative work as far as like, oh, I got some cavities. Can you fix that? Yeah. No, like since I graduated dental school in 2013, since then I've done, you know, like a dental filling or restoration or anything when it didn't work since then, all I've done is pretty much uh, the oral surgery procedures. So even if I wanted to, I'd be the worst person to do a filling or a crown or a bridge on someone because I, I don't honestly don't even remember the basics of doing those procedures because I haven't done them in oh, 10 years now, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, 10 years. Wow. Okay, so 2013, you graduated. When did you open up your practice? Oh, I opened up in... Pretty much, I started opening in 2017, but I officially started seeing patients late 2018 to 29, early 2019, because well, I worked a group practice first before opening up. Uh, okay, so you had the location you were gonna open up, but it was just there. Were you still paying rent throughout 2017, 2018 until you opened up, or how did that no, work? No. So when you're opening a practice, it's a very long laborious process. So there's a lot of things that you have to do. One, you have to create an entity. So it could be LLC, S corporation, whichever you choose. And then once you have that, you need a tax ID number so you can be a legal uh, company that can pay taxes. So that, that may take about a week, let's say, or two weeks to get all that finalized. Once all that's done, then now you, you know, you're beginning to search for an actual office space you do your demographic studies to make sure the area can support your uh, surgeries or your procedures. Then usually you're working with a broker that's going to take you on tours, kind of like looking at a, a home to purchase. But in this case, you're looking at an office to rent. So you're looking at multiple spaces, making sure you're not violating like non-compete agreements that you may have with your current employer. Once you find the location, then you have to start the, the letter of intent. So you give a letter to the landlord explaining what your plan is for the space. If they agree, then they'll um, offer you the terms that's available for renting or buying the space if that's what you decide to do. In my case, I decided to uh, rent the space. After that, you start a negotiation process. So you negotiate the of renting the space with the landlord or the, the broker or broker's company that's renting you the space. That could be weeks, months, because you have to hire an attorney to review documents. You go back and forth. Maybe you, you redline certain items, add certain items, and they renegotiate. And eventually, once they agree to the terms, then you sign the lease, and then they give you like a future commencement date. So you're not actually paying any rent until you're actually finished 
building your space and then open your doors. So the build-out process, that's the part that takes the longest because you have to get permitting done. And that could be months, six months. Either you just don't know how long, depending on what state you're in. So once your permitting is done, then you can actually start the building process. And you start the building, you help with the design of the space, how you want the space to flow, how many operators you want, where you want them located, the uh, type of uh, equipment that you need, all these things. It's so much that goes into it. By the time you finish your office, it's probably going to be a year from the start to finish before you actually open your doors. So I started early enough knowing that I wanted to have my own private practice. So I kind of started after I took a, a job with a group practice, I started looking at office space just in case I didn't like working in the group practice, which I didn't. So then I ended up starting the process from looking and then building out eventually. That's why it took so long. You didn't like working at the group practice, you said? No, it wasn't for me, honestly. Um, some people might like it. The office I worked for was nine offices, 10 doctors. And it's pretty much corporate, in my my opinion. So it's a lot of moving parts. It's very chaotic. So as, as you would imagine, a big operation can be very chaotic. It's extremely busy. A lot of patients all over. We had probably over 100 different doctors that were referring patients to the offices that I, I was working in. And when you start off in a group practice, because you're the new guy, so to speak, you have to pay your dues, kind of like anything in life. You pay your dues. So you're maybe seeing the less productive cases that the older doctors no longer are interested in treating. So you're trying to make production goals that they set for you, but it's almost impossible because you're working very low production procedures all the time. And then let's say you get a large case that's high producing, the senior doctor may choose to take that case and do the case themselves, in which case it doesn't count as a production goal for you. So a lot of these larger groups, they're production driven, you know, even though it's, you're providing a service to patients, it's still a business and you have to meet production goals in order for you to survive as a business. So for me, it just wasn't the kind of environment I wanted. I wanted a, an environment where I can actually control the patient flow, the experience of the patient when they come in. I want to be able to sit down, and speak to the patient so they can understand clearly what the procedure is going to entail and decide whether or not they want to move forward or not. In a larger practice that's extremely busy, you're usually running from room to room. You don't have as much time to spend with each patient. And I find that that makes for a poor patient experience in the long run and possibly higher uh, complication rates because you're rushing. Mm -hmm. And no matter how good you are at anything, if you're rushing, you're going to be more careless than if you're taking your time and paying more attention. So that, that was, for me, that was the reason. But some people love group practice. They like the idea of bouncing ideas off other doctors. For me, I'm very, uh, very self-centered, self-driven, self-motivated. So for me, it's easy for me to just read something or take a course and practice and get better on my own. I don't feel the need to always bounce ideas off someone else, but occasionally I do. But it's um, it's close friends that are in, in the profession. We talk, you know, discuss these as needed. Yeah, I like that. No matter who you are, if you're rushing, you'll be more careless. That's true, man. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Don't they say like slow is smooth and smooth is fast? So you got to be like real. Exactly. Especially when, when you're doing surgery and you're working close, you're working close to a lot of vital structures, nerves. You're working close to uh, blood vessels, arteries, veins. So, and you could easily maim someone and it could be a permanent injury that's not repairable. 
So you always want to slow down and you want to think and be cautious and treat the person as you would like to be treated or you'd like your family member to be treated. So in a larger group practice, not saying that they're not doing great work. It's just it's harder for you to do excellent work uh, when you're under stress and you're pressured. You see 30, 40 patients in a day. That's superhuman level concentration and focus. And most people after in, let's say, 12 hours, you're really tired. You know what I mean? So it's very difficult to run a business like that and do it every single day, five to six days a week and still give your 100% best to everyone. Yeah. Did, how long did you end up staying there? I stayed there for almost two years. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. So I opened my office in the latter part of my tenure with them. And I started seeing patients in my own practice and kind of going between my office and their office until it became um, disadvantageous for me to continue. Unfortunately, I'll be moving on uh, at the end of a certain period of time. And they were fine with it. And, you know, we, we split amicably and uh, I agreed to the non-compete that we signed. And four and a half years later, I have my own thriving practice. So it was a, a good decision for me. Yeah, that's good, man. All right. So can we jump into your, your business now, your practice? Sure. I get a little bit in the details. All right. So when it came to your loan process for the practice, which bank did you go with? Initially, I started off with Banks of America, but my issue is a little more difficult because I initially came here as a foreigner, so I'm an international student. So to get a loan to start a business is almost impossible if you're an international student. So I was on a green card after I finished my residency and I started with Bank of America and almost got to the end to finalize the loan until they, they, they realized that my green card was a conditional green card. So it was going to expire after about two years if I didn't have a job that was going to sponsor the green card. So then they decided um, that wasn't a good idea for them to finished the loan. So they pretty much terminated the loan with me at that point. So then I uh, found a different bank, which is Wells Fargo, and they were not as strict on that rule. So they were okay with me, just the fact that legal green card status. So I went with them. The downside with going with them is their loans are uh, interesting loans because they usually force you to sign over like your life insurance policy. And they obviously they're, they're scared that if something happens to you, they're not going to be able to recoup their money. So I understand that. But I think if you open a business, you should be able to take a loan under a business that's a legally formed entity. I don't think they should tie the business to you personally. But unfortunately, in uh, our industry, that's how it is. So they tie the loan to the doctor because you are the business, essentially. And they also had something called negative uh, amortization, which means when you're paying down on the loan, you're not really paying a lot of interest. Most of your payment goes towards principal, but not much towards the interest. So eventually the interest just keeps accruing and accruing and accruing. It just gets, it gets out of control. So I eventually, you know, refinance out of that loan. But in the beginning, just needing a loan, going with whatever bank I could get, uh, I initially went with Wells Fargo. Gotcha. Okay. How much was the build out or how much was the loan in total? So I, I my loan was approximately three, about 320,000. So on the lower end, I try to be more, more economical about my build out. Yeah. No. What were the, what was the interest uh, on that or terms? Interest with Wells Fargo was 4.99%. Okay. Okay. So it's not so like... Back in 2017, 2018. So this was like average what everyone was getting four, three, maybe four to 5%, 6% in some places. 
Gotcha. Okay. And then fast forward a little bit, your build out or how did you find your location? So I, I had a broker that I worked with and we were kind of pigeonholed to certain areas because of my non-compete. Mm-hmm. And again, I work in a large group, so they have a lot of offices. So you have a non-compete from each location. So not knowing this going in, I signed, you know, the contract, like, you know, like an idiot. So after I finished, I had only two places that I could feasibly work because I lived in Washington, D.C. So I could either open an office in D.C. or I would have to open here in, in Bowie, Maryland to still have a decent commute from D.C. to Maryland and be able to, you know, not have a, a horrendous uh, experience driving back and forth to work. So I was kind of forced to look in this area for the most part, mainly because of my non-compete and then my proximity to my home, uh, which we had already purchased. And there's no point of, you know, selling the home only after a year of owning it just because I want to open an office somewhere else. So after finding this location, we kind of did the research, did the demographic studies. And the mean income for most families was above 100000 So that told me that, okay, they could potentially support oral surgery services. And I looked at the competition around as well. And it was about three to four other oral surgeons, but they were a little older. So I knew eventually they were going to retire. So it's kind of advantageous for me to come in as a new doctor, give it four or five years, then maybe the other guys will start retiring. And then now you become the more established um, name in the area. And that's that's the main reason I picked the location. Okay, nice, man. And so how much was like the build out process? How long did it take? Where was the delays, constructions and things like that? So for us, uh, from once we actually started to build out, it was about four to six months, actually, which was, I think, on the faster end. Probably cost probably around, let's say, 200000 for the actual build out. And that's on the low end as well. We I strategically looked for a company that wasn't the most expensive, you know what I mean? And we tried to make use of the existing space as much as possible. We didn't do uh, a complete overhaul. We used existing rooms. We moved some walls around, expanded some areas, but that's pretty much it. So from start to finish, you know, once permitting was done, it probably about four to six months to completion. So our story wasn't like the typical. A lot of I've heard a lot of nightmares, and you know, year one year, two years, you're still struggling to open an office. But we pretty much, my wife and I, we stayed on top of permitting, which is what slows down your build out. So we will call the uh, the department that handled the permitting in Maryland that we kept hounding them and hounding them day after day after day. We went as high up as like the manager of different departments to make sure that things were getting done. And that's what helped ultimately expedite the build-up process for us and the permitting. What were you saying, uh, I guess, to like the permitting offices? Like, I, I know, like, for example, like you can keep hounding them, but like, do you just say like, is it ready? Is it ready? Uh, what do you say? So what we did was, well, my wife and I did, we told them, you guys are affecting, you know, our livelihood. Essentially, we need to open an, our office because if we're not open, we can't generate income or we can't make any money. So you guys are affecting our livelihood. We've been at this process for, let's say, two months. This person that we've been speaking with has been kind of dragging their feet and not much has been done. So we want to get someone that can actually make uh, the decision and help move us along. And we all just kind of harp on this is our livelihood without this practice open. 
we cannot make a living. And we, you know, I just went to school. I have student loan debt. I have all this. I have a bank loan that I have to pay and I have a rent that's going to be due at this point. Mm -hmm. So that kind of put pressure on them. And eventually the manager stepped in and just kind of helped push the process along further. Because otherwise, you're just a number on a piece of paper. You're at the mercy of a front desk clerk or someone who may not care as much about the actual bigger picture. It, to them, it's just a uh, permit that needs to be approved. And they may put you to the back, forget about it. They go on vacation. And then they're the only ones that can do certain things. So you have to wait for them to come back from vacation. And then then they pick it up again. And then you're, you're number 100 out of uh, 200 people. So you're, you're you just lost in the shuffle. So it's good to call, advocate for yourself and stress to them how important it is that you get this permitting done, how quickly you need to get your office open and all the mitigating factors such as I have student loans, a uh, bank loan, I have a rent due, you know, and that usually kind of helps. Yeah, no, that's real. Like you're real. You know what I mean? Like you were honest and real about it. Like, hey man, look, like there ain't no shame. You know what I mean? I gotta get this thing done because this is my life. Yeah, exactly. That's good. I like that. So then yeah. let me ask you, how do you market and advertise your practice? So as a specialist, it's a little different for us. Our uh, target is, our target uh, audience is general dentists, uh, pediatric dentists, orthodontists, endodontists. So any dentist that would require a more oral surgical procedure that they may not choose to do or may not do in their office. So when I'm initially marketing, I go out, I have lunch with different doctors. I introduce myself and my practice and tell them, you know, what sets my office apart from the other oral surgeons, which in the beginning, the main thing is being able to get patients in the door faster because you're not as booked out far into the future as most of these oral surgery practices in the area. We went in with and discussed our surgical experience and expertise. And as long as you're a nice person and you have your degree, you graduated and you can pretty much answer their basic concerns like, can you get my patient in early? Do you take certain insurance? And usually most doctors will try to help you out by referring patients to at least help get your, your practice started because they understand they've been a new practice before. So they'll send you a couple patients. Now, keeping those referral bases and uh, line of communication is the difficult part because after two or three years, you may not see that office anymore. You may never see the doctor again or the front office anymore. So you may not get as much referrals as you were getting in the beginning. Be visible to each office, but not be annoying to the point where they just say, listen, just stop bothering us. Yeah. So, yeah, so we had a marketing person initially that would go out and just introduce themselves and, you know, will bring gifts and buy lunch for the office or breakfast every now and then. But you know, as we got older, and then more established, we didn't have that person anymore. So we kind of just did good work and then let the good word of mouth spread back to the practices. And that helped solidify um, our name and our practice in the community. The more current um, time, the social media has become pretty much the number one go-to for most businesses, especially for doctors. We're late to the game, actually. So I, I recently you know, realized that if you don't have a social presence, you're actually uh, doing yourself a disservice because a lot of the public, they have no clue what an oral and maxillofacial surgeon is. What do we do? They just see a dentist and they think that's all they need. So for us, we depend on the dentist that they're seeing, the general dentist, the pediatric dentist, orthodontist, to say, hey, you need something more 
surgical, let me send you to an oral surgeon. So, but if the public were educated enough about our profession, they could seek us out on their own. They could say, hey, I have wisdom teeth problems. I'm going to need an oral surgeon. Let me go ahead and find one. But if we don't do enough to put ourselves out there and, you know, social media is one of the biggest platforms to, to do it, then we're going to be always, you know, the la- last on the patient's mind. The first is, let me see my general dentist. That's true. When you at the beginning had the guy going out or the person going out, right, um, marketing, would you say that was a great, uh, like, was it good? Did they bring a lot of people in, traction? What was the approach? How much did you pay them? Things like that. Yep. So for the marketing person, we were on a commission basis. So they were getting paid, uh, like, let's say, I believe it was like $20 per patient that actually walks in the door. Initially, because, you know, you really don't know if that person is going to be effective or not. So they went out and they did generate some, maybe one or two referrals. But I had also been meeting with other doctors and having lunch with them uh, and going by their offices in conjunction uh, with the marketing person going out to different locations. Mm -hmm. So I did see an improvement in some offices referring, but it wasn't uh, very significant. So I realized that most of the offices, they prefer to meet the doctor in person. And it's just a lot easier for some reason. They just feel more comfortable when they meet the doctor that they're going to be referring to. So I stopped using the marketing person for that reason, because I figured, you know, I might as well just set up lunches, meet them myself, meet the office staff so they can see your personality, see who you are and make sure they like you before, you know, they start referring. And that that works out better. And that's what really helped generate more um, referrals. Did the person ever like set up Lunch and Learns for you or they just their only thing was like, you just got to bring in new patients? Yeah. So they helped with setting up our uh, Open house was very big. So they helped kind of go out and, um, you know, advertise and pass out the flyers and invite the different offices to come by, take a look at our office and meet me in person for those that I didn't get a chance to meet. So that did help a lot. Uh, as far as CD, they, uh, that person that I hired initially was more of like more of a salesperson. So they don't, they didn't have a medical or healthcare background. So they didn't understand those different aspects. So their goal is mainly just kind of selling, hey, this is the office. This is what we offer. Here's what we are. In the future, the idea would be to get someone who's actually more adept in the healthcare field and understands the importance of setting up continuing education for, you know, different doctors and planning different events to kind of maintain that line of communication. So that that's my next plan would be to hire either an office manager that's going to help to do it or a specific marketing person, because that's very important for every doctor to have continuing education. And that's what most of the larger groups are doing. They do continuing education every week and that keeps their office very busy. So you plan to host CE in your, like your facility, your practice? Yes. In future thinking, when I was building the office, I have a room designed specifically for CE. And the goal is to eventually start having CE on mostly probably uh, starting off with dental implants. Anybody can place a dental implant, but it's a lot of different things and nuances that comes, you know, with being an implant specialist or implantologist. So I've spent and invested a lot of time in learning all that I need to learn in the dental implant space and also all the technology that's available. So I think that's something good to kind of share with a lot of the uh, referring doctors. Okay, that's interesting. That's going to be good. When do you plan to eventually start doing that? 
most likely in, in the coming months, actively interviewing for a, either an office manager or a marketing coordinator. So it's, that's, that's the difficult part, is finding the, that key person yeah. that's going to help facilitate all these things. Because I can do it myself, but it's only so much you can do as a doctor, you know, doing the procedures, running the business, and then trying to also market on social media. Then now trying to go out and host CE. It's, it's just a lot. So you need someone to help facilitate certain mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, no, definitely to coordinate it all and everything. So then real quick, rewind a little bit. When you go to these practices and you decide to talk to them, right? And you said, I talk to them, let them know what sets my office apart from others. Um, how do you approach these practices? And then what specifically do you say when you're doing the lunch and learn? And then also when you're actually like wanting to meet the doctor? So typically what I would do is I would have my receptionist contact an office that I may be interested in a meeting with and set up a, a request to set up a lunch date. And if they agree, then we'll set up a date to meet. And then I'll go by the office. And typically I'll bring um, lunch and some, you know, marketing material. And I'll sit down with, you know, all the doctors, if it's multiple doctors or if it's um, just one doctor, I sit with that one doctor. Just introduce myself, initially talk about backgrounds, you know, where I studied and stuff like that. And then um, introduce the office that we're a new office in the area. And the advantage is we're a modern, beautiful office and we can get your patients in quickly. And then also you try to feel out the dentist or, you know, the doctors that you're speaking with to see what kind of services they perform in their office. Because a lot of doctors perform a lot of oral surgery as well. So they may not necessarily need you for specifically oral surgery, but they may need you for IV sedation. Maybe they don't do IV sedation. So you just ask them, what do you do a lot of here in your office? What kind of procedures do you typically refer out? And then say, see if that's something that you can provide um, to help them, you know, make their practice more efficient, essentially. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's like, what, roughly 45 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour? Usually 30 minutes to an hour. Yep. Okay. So it's just like... I just go out to dinner with, you know, one or two doctors and just have a drink, have dinner, and then you just kind of casually talk. And just from having good conversation that flows naturally, they may like you as a person. And even without you trying to market or sell or anything to them, they'll just start naturally sending patients to you. Dr. E, what's more effective? The dinner and drinks where you're like, hey, what's up? Or is it the lunch and learn with the team? If you had to pick one. I think uh, the casual, like the dinner or just a lunch out with the doctor is more personal. And usually they get to know you on a more personal level. And that actually, I think, is more um, effective because in the office setting, a lot of people come by and do the same thing. They do their lunch and learns. And you know, so as a general dentist office or orthodontist or pediatric dentist, they probably see maybe 10 people come in their office per month and do a lunch and learn and give them food talk about how great they are and all this stuff. So they're probably used to that model. So I think if you have a personal relationship with the doctors and the staff, that, that goes a longer way than just meeting them and having lunch and talking for, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes and leaving. You know, we can get to know each other, make sure we're comfortable, we like each other. Cause that's ultimately what they're, why they're referring, but they like you, not really because you're any better than any other oral surgeon because they don't know until you actually start treating their patients. Yeah. And that's tough, man. I feel like, how do you initially do that? Where you're just like, 
hey, like, for example, I'm calling you, right? Like, hey, Dr. E, I know you don't know me, man, but want to go get dinner and some drinks and just like hang out for a bit? You're, are you going to be like, yeah, or are you going to be like, who is this guy? Like, So honestly, uh, when you reach out to like a uh, doctor specifically or their offices, I think flattering, I think, because they say, wow, of all the offices they picked us to reach out to. So usually I think they're, for the most part, the ones that are not not arrogant, they're flattered and they're happy that someone actually is interested in their practice and wants to meet them. So you explain to them, you're, uh, you're a new office in the area and you want to meet them, introduce yourself and talk a little bit more about your office. And, you know, if it's okay, just to have lunch. And most of the times they're very open to it. Who doesn't want free lunch or free dinner? Not losing anything. They meet a new doctor. They perhaps maybe in the market looking for another office to refer to anyway. So it's just a win-win for the most part. And even if they don't refer to you, at least they got to meet you. They had a good lunch or dinner, and then that could just be it. But for the most part, just telling them that you're new and this is the reason you want to meet them because you're new in the area. You want to introduce yourself. That usually gets them interested. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. Okay, so then one of the last questions I want to ask you is. Throughout this process, and let's think about from the moment you decided you're like, I want to do oral surgery to right now, right? Like this morning, what's been your biggest struggles or fails or pitfalls? I would say the biggest uh, struggles or pitfalls, I would say, would be just navigating the business aspect of being an oral surgeon and then also performing the surgery. So trying to split yourself into two, actually, because as a doctor that owns an office, you're wearing two hats. One, you're, you're a business owner and a manager. And then second, you're also a doctor that needs to be compassionate and skilled and be able to provide good service and care to your patients. So the biggest pitfall with that is not knowing you know, what hat you're wearing at what mm-hmm. point. Maybe a patient comes in, your front desk says, hey, this person doesn't want to pay for surgery, right? Uh, as the doctor, you're kind of, you know, maybe taking it personal, like, hey, I'm a good doctor. Why don't you want to pay for my procedures? But as the business person, you ought to say, well, maybe this person needs help financing their procedure. Maybe they just need some more information so they can be um, more aware of how financing works or how the uh, paying for a procedure works. And being a business owner and a doctor, it's hard for you to split yourself into two and wear different hats at different times. So I think that's probably the biggest downfall for me and probably for anyone, any doctor that owns their own solo practice that can easily lead to uh, the detriment of your business. If you don't know how to separate the doctor part from the business owner and the manager part of it. How do you do it then? How do you like know exactly when to separate? It's still, you know, struggle every day. So what I do is I have specific business owner or manager days or hours. So on Wednesdays or when I use for like my actual, I'm a manager on this day, you know, I'm not a doctor here. So I don't see patients on Wednesdays for that reason. And, you know, if it's not a Wednesday, I just focus on patient care. If staff have any issues or whatever, then I wait until Wednesday to deal with it. So I'm not juggling between I'm an owner, business manager, and a doctor, you know, at the same time, you can really get turned around and you can really, you know, drain your energy and stress you out. And it can then spill over into your actual performance, you know, in your actual procedures that you're performing on patients. So the best thing to do would be to split your time, pick a day that you're going to be a manager and an owner. And then the other days, which is the bulk of the time, you're actually the doctor treating patients because that's what you're more 
productive at doing. That's what brings in more production for you as a, as the doctor when you're doing procedures. If you're just sitting around doing meetings all day, you're not making any production. Yeah, no, definitely, 100%. So on the Wednesday, break it down to us. Like, what's a manager day like? What do you do specifically? On Wednesdays, I do bookkeeping. So I look at the books to see, to make sure it's balanced. Uh, double check receipts, make sure um, insurance companies that said they made payments for whatever procedure have actually made payments. You run your accounts receivable reports to make sure that you're um, in line with where you should be. You're not falling too far behind. Your collection percentage is at least 80 to 90% or more for your insurance claims that are out, outstanding. You pay bills. So it's a lot of bills to pay. So you make sure you pay your bills on those days. And you run payroll, usually uh, Wednesdays is when I do the payroll, depending on when it falls. But most of the time, it works out well that Wednesday is a good day for it. You also look at marketing. How can I grow the business? Look at how the business is, is faring from one year to the next. Am I growing? Am I going down? Am I getting more patients from this doctor? One of the last time I had a referral from this particular doctor, and then you say, okay, let me increase my marketing outreach. You may you know, make some posts online to engage more with your followers on those uh, on Wednesdays. Um, and then also, if you have any calls that you need to schedule or any meetings, you, you schedule those on the Wednesdays, at, like lunch with doctors, you do those on the Wednesdays. Or if you have a, a new equipment rep in the area that wants to discuss a new product, you do those on Wednesdays as well. Man, it almost feels like there's not enough time in Wednesday. You know what I mean? Like It spills over sometimes into different days, but for the, you try to do the bulk of it on a specific day that you pick. If you have a partner or office manager, it's easier. Like for me, I don't have an office manager, so I have to do a lot more than the typical doctor who has a manager. The manager will typically do a lot of the stuff. Yeah. Pay your bills, check your AR, all that stuff. You know, But I unfortunately don't have a manager, so I have to do all that myself. But that's usually... Um, the easiest way, if you have a good manager, that's the easiest way to do it. But if you don't, then you got to do it. Learn how to do it because, you know, it's your business at the end of the day. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself, Dr. E, like on that day where you know it has to, like a lot of things, you have to be productive and everything. You're like, oh man, I'm on like Instagram. You know what I mean? Like, or you're making a post and you're like trying to make sure you're doing all these nice things to the post. And you're like, I spent an hour doing that. For that right? yeah, 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 it is. I mean, it's a juggling act because, I mean, you, you need to do it but you need to be time conscious as well. So some days, you know, I'll spend more, more time than I would like. But so what I do now with posting for social media, I do it first thing in the morning because I usually have an extra like 15 minutes before like getting ready to leave. So I usually do try to post first thing in the morning because that's when you get most views anyway. Most people are just starting their day, scroll through their feeds. By the end of the day, they may look again, but the majority of the views that, you, that I've seen, they come from the morning to like the early evening. And then after that, you don't really get much more engagement. So I try to post first thing in the morning. So that way I, I don't waste time on Wednesdays doing any kind of posting. I kind of focus on the business aspect of managing everything else. Okay, good. That's good advice. Awesome, Dr. Reed. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. But before we say goodbye, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me as well, Michael. So um, I'm very active on Instagram. My handle is at Doctor, so dr. dot egolum e g o l u m. I'm also on Facebook. You look for Bowie Oral Surgery. You can find us there, as well as on LinkedIn. My first name is Kamakanam, and then last name Egolum. And you can find you know a lot of interesting uh, 
case presentation, videos, and discussion on all, all those platforms. And I recently started a YouTube as well. And it's at the, you know, Dr. Egalon, dr.easyrlum as well. Awesome. So guys, that's all going to be in the show notes below. So check it out. And Dr. E, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure and we'll hear from you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Nice talking to you. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that episode. I truly appreciate it. And Dr. E, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. We appreciate it. Guys, if you want to reach out to him, you can find him on the Dental Marketer Society Facebook group or go in the show notes below and click on the links to reach out to him. And at the same time, don't forget, if you want or have ever been curious about utilizing a practice management software, an all-in-one cloud-based practice management software, try CareStack out. Go on the show notes below. It's the first link in the show notes below. And you can schedule a free personalized demo, right? They'll show you everything. And if you're tired of, you know, having all these different types of bills to pay for different types of uh, platforms and all these things, this is an all-in-one platform that continues to be innovative and modernizes the practice. I mean, they're amazing. You heard uh, Dr. Stevenson talk about it. So if you're ever been curious, there's no harm, no foul. Like just go in the show notes below, click on the first link in the show notes below. There's no strings attached and check them out. Check out CareStack. And at the same time, guys, remember I did a poll on Instagram. I told you guys about this, which you can follow us. Just search for the dental marketer on Instagram. But the poll was, if you would want to hear a book quote or highlight that I've read, and if so, where in the episode do you want to hear it? And most of you guys said, yes, you do. And a majority of you said you would want to hear it right now, right here at the end of this episode. So here we go. This quote is from the book Essentialism, and it says, success can distract us from focusing on the essential things that produce success in the first place. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.